welcome to a special debate format episode of the Anti-Empire Project. I'm the special moderator, Nora Barrows-Friedman, from The Brief, tracking the empire and also the electronic intifada. Listeners who also read the newsletter might have seen an essay about Brazil, sub-imperialism, and multipolarity. In the essay, Justin Podor, one of our debaters, assumed that the global economy is in the process of changing from a unipolar world of U.S. and Western hegemony to a multipolar one where there are several large, powerful countries and where small and medium-sized countries might have a bit more room to maneuver. After reading the essay, Sam Gindin, our other debater, questioned whether such a transition is even happening. So in today's episode, we debate the following proposition. The global economy is in transition from a unipolar U.S.-dominated world to a multipolar one where China, Russia, and possibly other powers are on the rise and U.S. power is in decline. Debating for the proposition is Justin, host of this podcast. Justin has 20 minutes for his opening statement. Justin, I'm tossing it to you. Good All luck. Right, here I go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sam, for, for joining us. Thank you, Nora, for moderating. Uh, we will we will be worthy of the Oxford Union and the other uh, debating great debating societies of our age, maybe even of the Second International. We can scream at each other like Lenin and his, his uh, interlocutors did or Marx and Bakunin or something. That Love was the it. first. Um, okay, so uh, until the 1600s or 1700s, 25% of the world economy was China, 25% of the world economy was India. Um, it was over the course of British uh, imperialism that India was reduced to something like three or 4%, and China was also, uh, came very close to being dismembered um, at the end of the uh, 19th century. Um, speaking of dismembering, uh, the wealth that came from dismembering and dismantling the civilizations of the Americas, the Aztecs, the Mayas, the Incas, taking their land, enslaving their populations, um, the African slave trade, uh, which Britain monopolized from 1707 on, these are the bases for uh, the accrued advantages that were um, kind of piled upon one another uh, by the British Empire and then its U.S. successor. So it's uh, a kind of a plundered wealth that is globally unprecedented that led to the rise of the British Empire, and that was followed by the rise of the U.S. Empire. Um, and the Industrial Revolution, the way I see it, is... Uh, something that happened because of that plunder, not the other way around. So that's one uh, element of my worldview here, which is that, you know, I think a lot of people see the Industrial Revolution as becoming this like technological, uh, this incredible technological monster that then went and took over the world. But in fact, it was taking over the world that led to all of the massive wealth that was then used to uh, form the basis of the Industrial Revolution. So the wealth we're talking about was drained from the colonies. Um, it's been quantified in the case of India at around $45 trillion by uh, uh, the Patnaiks. Um, the concepts mentioned in the essay uh, that we're talking about, about Brazil and multipolarity, they, I talk about two processes, value transfer and unequal exchange. And both of these 
Concepts involve a series of processes by which the goods, the exports, the things that are produced by and in the global south are kept low. The prices of those are kept low. The prices of north, global north goods and services especially are kept high. Um, the mechanisms of this are outlined in many studies. I always mention uh, they had a big influence on me and my thinking. Um, recent ones, uh, Zach Cope's The Wealth of Some Nations, uh, Putnayak and Putnayak's Theory of Imperialism, uh, Jason Hickel's uh, academic papers about uh, eco unequal exchange in the ecological sense and ecological value transfer. And of course, Michael Hudson, uh, Global Fracture, Killing the Host, and sub-imperialism. So what are these mechanisms uh, through which the wealth is drained? Um, there is always, uh, in recent decades, the US always acts to prevent um, resource producers from forming effective cartels, right? So, uh, you know, the use of Saudi, the alliance with Saudi Arabia to break OPEC, um, the use of subsidized agriculture, but also of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, to enforce intellectual property, to attack food security, to attack the ability of countries to produce their own food. Um, there's also mechanisms like brain drain, right, to, to make sure that educated people migrate to the global north and that the expensive services that they charge are not available cheaply in their own countries because the professionals are all gone. Um, of course, I mentioned patents, intellectual property regimes. Uh, there's also the sale of weapons, uh, weapons that are not uh, appropriate <laughs> to the self-defense needs of countries, but they buy them to provide the money back or send the money to the US. Um, arms sales uh, are a part of the transfer of value to the countries that produce arms, which are also the same uh, Western countries and notably the US. Um, there are experts that go and restructure your country and advise uh, governments on how to cut public sectors, smash unions, concentrate land, deploy the police, control media, install democracy, etc. And finally, in the final analysis, there's the threat of war, there's the threat of coups, there's the threat of sanctions, all of which deter any nationalist governments from trying the economic nationalist route. Um, the crown jewel, the top of this whole pyramid is the dollar seniorage, right? So the fact that the, it's it's all of this, this power pyramid um, is is the base and at the very top of it is the ability of the US that the US has had to impose the dollar. So the transactions of the worlds uh, between countries that have nothing to do with the US, they take place in dollars. Uh, treasuries of central banks hold their reserves in dollars so the US can add more dollars anytime they want where others have to earn them through export. Um, there are those who argued like the Indian research unit on political economy that argued that this was one of the main causes of the US invading Iraq in 2003 when Saddam Hussein switched to trading oil in euros, uh, when Libya proposed a gold-backed currency for Africa just before Gaddafi was overthrown, and um, the constant pressure on people like uh, Chavez or Correa uh, or those movements in Ecuador and Venezuela who are punished, you know, at the, the level of freak out, so to speak, uh, when they start talking about changing uh, the currency basis uh, goes uh, haywire when when we reach that 
when we reach that discussion. So the question is, what happens when these mechanisms are no longer available? And that's what takes me to my the reason I argue in favor of this proposition, because I believe that this whole pyramid of value transfer is less and less solid. It's on a less solid foundation, and it's being attacked in all of its uh, details. So China is now ahead of the US in purchasing power parity. It manufactured, it's ahead in terms of the volume of manufacturing. Um, technologically, China is close. Um, you know, it, it's not, it's, you know, each time the US bans some kind of chip or some kind of technology, you see Chinese uh, scientists, engineers rolling up their sleeves and figuring out how to do it. And so as, as these things are sanctioned, we see China just making up for um, making up for it in some other way. And so the ability to just cut China out of an industry or out of the global economy, I don't think is there anymore. Um, as far as what about choking off China's resources? Well, China is developing independent relationships with countries in Africa, in the Arab world, even with allies that are supposed to be absolutely solid like Saudi Arabia. So you can't monop the US is not able to monopolize resources like they did and they're not able to monopolize technology like they did. They can't even count on the loyalty of the Saudi Arabias of the world. And then there's the military side. Of course, all of the power of the dollar is based on a basis of military supremacy. Um now this is debatable for sure, but uh, I believe that Ukraine is showing that the US can't just impose its will uh, if Russia disagrees. I believe Syria showed that before, before Ukraine. Uh, and even where Russia wasn't involved, like Afghanistan, the US withdrew um, basically, <laughs> you know, in part because Pakistan um, didn't allow them to continue to use their bases uh, to attack Afghanistan. And once that was over, it was became very difficult to control Afghanistan if you don't have Iran or Pakistan. They're working on getting Pakistan back, but again, things are not going according to plan there either. Um, even Iraq, you know, the consequences of the Iraq war, I don't think have been fully digested in terms of the damage that was done to the U.S. ability to project, project power. Now, under, um, you know, the bipolar world uh, where the USSR existed, the U.S. offered aid programs, human rights, growth ideology. These were the alternatives that were offered to things like land reform, communism, economic nationalism. And today, the offer that the U.S. makes is much less. It's like, we won't bomb you, we won't sanction you, we won't overthrow you. And all of those things have less bite because they've been overused. So they've sanctioned so many countries, Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, China, Russia, that they start to trade with each other. Um, Iran has kind of thumbed its nose at U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. They've they've exchanged technology. They've made armed um armed escorts uh to oil uh shipments and and all kinds of things like this that were 
that are, you know, would be considered fairly provocative if the U.S. could simply impose whatever it wanted. Um, meanwhile, in the West, there's a continuous rollback of social democratic distribution, various attempts to pump the dollars as these mechanisms of actually draining resources are being strained or severed. Um, if the if I'm right and the global South wages and prices can't continuously be depressed, then we are going to see major changes ahead. If the global South can break the monopoly of buyers of their resources, which is happening through China and Africa, um, and the growing coalition of the sanctioned, then we are going to see big changes. We are on the verge or in the middle of some big changes in terms of the world system. Um, so what does this mean in terms of like the long, the long view? Um, like I said, you know, I view the Anglo-American empire as kind of one system. Um, they took over from the Spanish, uh, you know, empire before sometime in the 1700s. It's been a, it's been a good run, you know, 2,500, I mean, 20, 250 plus years, but I do believe it's coming to an end. Um, I believe that the imperialist theorists of the 20th century, like Mahan and Mackinder, they developed a whole geographical scheme of how naval powers like the Brit Britain and the US could keep the, the global heartland, right? The Europe and Asia together, the world island, they called it. They, they had to keep them down by controlling the coasts because they feared the possibilities of the heartland uniting, the, the Russia-Germany uh, alliance, which uh, U.S. is currently trying to do their best to prevent, I think successfully, at least in the short and medium term, but also like China-Russia, which has been driven together by the same action, um, you know, China, India, the Arab world and Africa were all underrated, I would say, by these naval theorists. Um, the Sino-Soviet split of the 50s to recently uh, held this back, the world heartland unity, but that's basically been overcome. Um, they Once that's overcome, there's very little the U.S. can do. If they fall apart again, you know, maybe we'll maybe we'll be back into the kind of conversation about how the U.S. can insert themselves. So, um, you know, the imperialists of the, of the early 20th century believed basically in a racial theory, right? They believed that if the white race held it, held their solidarity, they could keep the rest of the world down forever. But like that whole theory was always based on an admission that there's nothing that special about, uh, about Europe or about the US. Like you have technology that can eventually make its way around the world they the kind of takeover the theft of north america of the americas happened mainly because of smallpox and other diseases that destroyed uh huge amounts huge numbers of indigenous populations without that i don't i also don't think we would see the kind of settler colonies that we're seeing uh that we've seen um and so the only thing left, I think, to to re rebut is the idea that maybe the U.S. and China are kind of in cahoots and all the all the tension that we're seeing is kind of made for our consumption, made for the consumption of, you know, foolish people, whereas the transnational kind of ruling class uh, is is still working together and coordinating together. But I don't believe that uh, because 
for that to be true, that means basically a lot of things that are happening are fake, right? The kidnapping of Meng Wanzhou, the persecution of Chinese scientists, the U.S. stunts in Taiwan and the South China Sea, the U.S. failure in Syria, the U.S. never apparently, you know, the U.S. maybe wanted to withdraw from Afghanistan. They never wanted to invade Iran. They never wanted to subjugate North Korea. So all these things that doesn't want to defeat Russia. So all these things that the U.S. has been unable to do we would have to maybe believe that they never really wanted to do them. And I think that if we look at their statements and their public uh, behaviors and what they've tried to do, uh, I think they have tried to do them and they can't do them anymore. And that's uh, that's why I believe we are in a transition from a unipolar to a multipolar world. Thank you very much. I now turn it over to you, Nora, to turn it over to my debate partner. Excellent. Thank you so much, Justin. Uh, Sam is uh, debating now against the proposition that, quote, the global economy is in transition from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. Sam Gindin is an economist, a labor activist, and a writer. Sam, you have uh, about 20 minutes as well, even though Justin came in just under 17. So uh, you can get his three you minutes. Go, yeah, you can go to 23. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good luck, Thanks. Sam. Yeah. Uh, I love the way you started, uh, Justin. You look like you're really ready to do jujitsu. Uh, I'm not sure where to start. I mean, I think our differences, there are so many things you got into, which I partly agree to and mostly didn't. And I don't know how to get at it. I'm, I'm going to approach it. Uh, I think the way I'm going to start is with a different way of thinking about the American empire. And I'm going to try to present a different, which will give you some ammunition in terms of attacking it. Uh, and I guess I want to say two things to think about this as we move through it. Uh, one is the American empire was never an omnipotent. And, and I want to kind of go through a little history of the American empire in terms of making that. And the second point is when we're thinking about transitions that are going on, uh, we have to think about the contradictions in China as well. We think about the contradictions in the U.S. And we have to think about the contradictions in China. I will say after listening to you, it's hard for me to imagine people coming to some conclusion without getting into so many detailed things. So I see this as kind of, having listened to you, I see this as a, a longer term ongoing debate that needs to take place. Uh, and I guess I don't know whether there's a transition or not. Most of all, I'm skeptical about whether we can actually say there's a transition. Uh, empirically, who knows? I don't see my role as kind of predicting where things are going to be in 10 years. But I'll talk about that later. So let me just start off with the American Empire. The, the American Empire wasn't just an extension of the British Empire, of another, you know, there's a new kid on the block and it happens to be the Americans who was the British before. Something radical happened in the nature of empire. Uh, you know, the U.S. was the most powerful economic country by the end of the 20s, but it wasn't trying to form an empire. It had its empire in Latin America, but was mostly trying to open up the other empires so it could get into their sphere of control. Through the war, I, the conclusion they came to was that global capitalism was really in danger because of these conflicts within capitalism. I mean, if you look at the first half century, 
the first half of that 20th century, it looked like not just globalization wasn't possible, you had two world wars, a depression, but maybe capitalism wasn't possible. And what they came out of this with was a different conception of empire. It was a sense of empire being uh, a universal system for all of capitalism. What they tried, to, it, it became a system. They, they moved away from saying uh, empires used to be about territory and controlling certain territories and keeping other capitals out because you're competing with them. Now what they were saying was, uh, we want to imagine a world where you're not divided into empires that keep out other capitals. How do we get there? They wanted to uh, say actually that where empires limited sovereignty, we believe in sovereign states, qualifications, of course, which I'll get to. But the idea was that there would be sovereign states, Germany, France, Japan, etc., even the losers of the war. Uh, third of all, that each state would take responsibility within their own borders for the making of global accumulation. Canada, for example, would set the conditions for General Motors to come in, exploit the workers, get subsidies, have a, have a market, et cetera, uh, and not be discriminatory. In, a, in other words, e each state couldn't just favor their own capital. It was for global accumulation. They had to be thinking in terms of global accumulation following those rules. And everybody had to accept the rule of law, which was defined in a very particular way. Property relations, private property relations were sacrosanct. Free trade had to take place. Uh, free capital movements had to take place. And profits had to be free to uh, make their profits wherever they were and reinvest them anywhere else. So the rule of law was critical. Now, where the military fit into this was different than the past. The military wasn't just there to take over, for example, Iraq and say, now this is ours. The military was there to try to protect this global capitalism where it existed and was being threatened by a revolution, nationalist or socialist, uh, or to spread capitalism. And that was a major point. The, the military was there to create the conditions in other countries for this kind of global, universal, global capitalism. And it started after the war by uh, trying to break down the empires that existed, which is contradictory. They didn't want to break them down to the point that uh, communists took over, for example. Uh, and then to spread this to the global south, to spread capitalism to the global south. So in a way, I'm really emphasizing capitalism a lot more, and I'm going to emphasize class a lot more as well as, as we get into this. The, the problem of getting it into the global south was much harder because the institutions didn't exist. You know, in Germany and France and England, you could say, well, uh, the institutions had, to be, had been developed for capitalism. There were markets. There were certain kinds of states. The challenge was to, re to restore capitalist power after the war because a lot of capitalist power had been threatened and delegitimated. So it was a different kind of problem. That was the challenge in the West very much. The, the fear wasn't Russia and the Soviet Union. The fear was communist movements within France and Germany and Italy. And the question is, how do you restore capitalism in those countries? How do you deal with radical labor movements and channel their militancy into consumerism rather than into democratizing investment? Uh, so, so it was this problem of integration, they were, and they were quite successful in integrating uh, Europe uh, and Japan. To develop the, 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 the countries that lost the war, they were integrated, but the former 
developed capitalist countries were integrated uh, quite successfully. Uh, the global South was very uneven. And I stress uneven. In some cases, they were uh, they actually became major manufacturers. We used to define the global South as they don't do manufacturing. They just ship resources. Well, the reality is, is that there's more manufacturing in the global South. Part of that is China, but not just China. Then there is in the North. The global South actually developed in particular ways through the system, some of them, very unevenly. Asia developed, uh, you know, very fast. The question of whether, you know, Latin America was, you know, starts and, and uh, declines. Africa still is a questionable thing. So there was this, what imperialism meant was the making of a global capitalism and the difficulties in doing that. Uh, it was successful in terms of the uh, Eastern Europe and Russia and the Soviet Union falling, uh, Vietnam falling, uh, limiting Cuba in Latin America. But it's an ongoing thing. So I, I want to say some things about the limits along the way, because this is an incredibly ambitious and difficult thing to make a global capitalism where everybody can compete according to rules. You don't compete by saying, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to bomb you generally. They're not. They're saying we're going to compete by having rules that we all accept, international rules and also rules in each country. So, you know, if you looked at 1950, U.S. had something like half the manufacturing under capitalism. By 1973, they had about 25%. Is this decline? No, because the only way you were going to build a global capitalism was that other capitalists were going to share in it. The measure was, were they integrating global capitalism in a way that American corporations could also benefit from? So it wasn't happening in the United States. Manufacturing wasn't taking over all the manufacturing, but these global uh, American corporations were in Europe, pushing for European integration, actually. So the integration of Europe to make Europe more successful in competing with the United States was very much supported by the United States. They saw this as adding more stability to capitalism. And it was American corporations in Europe who loved, they were the most internationalized. So they loved the integration of Europe. In the mid-50s, you get the Bandung countries. You get this rebellion from countries that had moved towards some degree of autonomy. There were national liberation movements. And were now getting together, particularly African and Asian countries, and challenging all the inequalities, whatever their reason was. I, I wouldn't argue at all with you about the inequalities that existed. This is capitalism. There's inequalities within a country, there's regional inequalities, and there are very profound inequalities across countries. But they were trying to resist this. And by the 60s, they were getting actually quite radical. The resolutions they were passing were about things like nationalization. Uh, the, the, you know, the sovereign right of countries to nationalize private property. So they were getting quite radical, but it didn't go anywhere. It didn't go anywhere because they didn't have the internal strength and because so many of them were actually outward oriented. It was much easier to imagine saying, well, our wages are low. Why don't we export more? Isn't that the path to development? I mean, China does this in spades later, which we'll get to. But even for these countries, it was easy to say, uh, how do we legitimate ourselves? We better, we can, we can borrow money. So they would borrow. It's much easier than restructuring and taking on your own internal classes. They borrow money and then you become dependent. You have to pay it back. So you have to export. So now you have to export. So that process, which was a radical challenge, which we shouldn't forget about, failed. It failed because of the seduction 
of a global capitalism that would allow you to grow faster. Um, in the 70s crisis, the U.S. had a profitability crisis. It had a crisis of the dollar. France was saying, we're going to take out our gold. We don't like where the U.S. is going. Uh, it was spending all this money on military uh, bases everywhere to consolidate capitalism in case it needed it. Uh, but Polanzas had this great insight, which was that, yeah, the U.S. is in crisis and a lot of people are mad at it. And Germany's complaining about things. France is complaining about things. But you know what? They all want the U.S. to survive because that was the other rule of this new empire. It needed an indispensable nation, somebody who had the capacity, both administratively, central banks, technologically, to keep this thing going. It couldn't just go spontaneously or some people meeting to keep it going. So even during that crisis, there was a concern that uh, there was an openness to the fact that we want America to change so it can remain a responsible empire. So it comes through that crisis actually stronger. Uh, they got off of gold and the dollar became more important. They accelerated globalization, which actually meant they were starting to invest in the global south where there were opportunities. And it led to either through supply chains or just investing in other countries, especially in Asia, to the development of these countries. They were being integrated through their own bourgeoisie, but also through workers who are looking for jobs, which kind of makes sense. Workers who want a job and are happy to see foreign direct investment come in. And by the way, all the rhetoric from these countries, from the politicians and the elites, was always to talk left. They spoke a nationalist language at the same time that they were calling for McDonald's or GM to come into their countries. That was kind of a, a, a standard uh, approach to it. And then an interesting thing happens after the 70s crisis in terms of people who think in terms of inter-imperial imperial rivalry. Capitalism's post-war boom had kind of ended, generally ended, uh, unevenly, and the economies were slowing down. And there was a, a thought that we're going to see inter-imperial rivalry now. Europe's going to compete with the United States. Uh, Americans were already worried about Japan's growth. There was a lot of you read the literature, that incredible racist literature about Japan taking over. Uh, then when that didn't work, there was Europe led by Germany. But what actually happened was there wasn't inter-imperial rivalry. There was more competition. But what emerged was neoliberalism. And what was so powerful about neoliberalism was it said it's a class question. What we all have to do is break the working class, have austerity, stop the growth in social services. And through that, there was a solution to all of that. That's how we would all restore our profits and continue to compete rather than compete with each other in an imperial way that might break down globalization. The Asian crisis at the end of the 90s, uh, again, there was a problem of, well, is integration good? This, this crisis was really profound. There are major crises in exchange rates. But what actually happened was that they concluded Almost every country that was involved in that, China exception, concluded that we actually have to accept more integration. We have to export more so that we have larger surpluses. So if there is a run on our currency, we'll have the surpluses to deal with it. And that meant more exports. And you saw that. Asia turned to a lot more manufacturing exports to the West. Uh, the last crisis we saw, I mean, the financial crisis, uh, 
you know, this was a major crisis. Started in the United States. It was global. It looked like maybe capitalism won't survive. And what they showed was, you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve became the global central bank. A lot of the money that it was printing wasn't just for the United States. They were printing money for the European banks. They needed the European banks to survive because otherwise everything's so integrated. Uh, there would be an economic collapse and maybe, you know, a, a serious crisis of capitalism. So the Federal Reserve at that moment in time showed how important the U.S. was. Now, I want to stress, you know, when we talk about American decline, America's losing a lot of its light manufacturing all through the 70s. It's losing it to Japan. Some of it is losing to India. It's losing it to Asia. And then it starts also being threatened in auto. Japan, Germany are building auto plants or sending exports. And the question, this is a crucial question. It isn't whether, how's my time? Five minutes? Okay. It isn't a question of whether uh, America is running into problems. It is always running into problems. It isn't a question of America can say we can reduce everything. It's part of being an empire is you have to accept that you're not going to be, you know, the, the, the dominant exporter all the time. If you look from the late 70s to today, the U.S. has run a deficit all the time. Part of that was stimulating the global economy. But you have to recognize that what it actually allowed because of the U.S. dollar and everybody's bringing their dollars back to the United States, including China and Japan, is that the U.S. can actually get these goods from the global south almost free. These extra goods they're paying for in dollars. I, I don't want to exaggerate in terms of almost free, but they're, they're getting it. And you're essentially getting the value of, of labor abroad uh, cheap. You don't have to make for, up for it with your own exports. Now, it meant a lot of lo job losses in the States. So, how so you always have to ask, well, how did they adjust? That's a critical question. Because the question of whether you can sustain an empire isn't whether you have a problem. It's whether you can get around it. So the U.S. moved very significantly into high tech, computers, software, uh, pharma care, uh, aerospace. These became the major industries, the high tech industries. They accepted that they were going to lose the other things. And that was going to be a real burden because you're going to have a lot of frustrations, which Trump took advantage of. They also moved into services, financial services, consultancy, engineering, accounting, legal. They moved into uh, massive distribution centers because that's key to global globalizations. You get the Walmarts, the Amazons, uh, Amazons. So you're, you're seeing this shift in America in a way that when you look at decline, you miss the flip side of this. So you have to look at that. Okay, so I'm running out of time, but we're going to have another 10 minutes. So that's great. Uh, I guess what I would stress because I haven't really gotten into China and the BRICS and Russia, which I'll get into in the next moment. But when we think about this, that we think about, does the U.S. have the capacity to adjust, which it has had in the past? Does it have advantages, which people used to think in the 50s that more military expenditures were keeping keeping the economy afloat? I think that was wrong. You, you know, you could do that through welfare, extending the welfare state, legitimating yourself. Um, where the military is so important is in high-tech production. That's why it's important. It's been a base of subsidizing high-tech production. It needs that high-tech production, and it uh, it reinforces it in the U.S. case into commercialization. 
Uh, now, this isn't automatic. I'm not saying that the U.S. empire will be there forever. I'm saying that to underestimate it and to dismiss it, and especially the U.S. empire is no longer legitimate. This is a big change. I agree with uh, Justin on this. Internally, nobody thinks that capitalism is great. I, I you know in the 60s, we used to tell people, uh, you might be getting all these things, but there's more to life than having these consumer goods. And we'd have to convince them of this. Now, you don't have to convince them of anything. They all think that capitalism sucks. They generally don't think that there's an alternative. And I think internationally, we're seeing a similar thing. There's a lot of, a lot of delegitimation of the American empire. And by the way, when you're listing their defeats, you can go back to Vietnam. I mean, the question was, so they lost in Vietnam, which the Amer a lot of Americans thought if we lose in Vietnam, this is going to spread everywhere. It's going to expose our weakness. It didn't happen. One of the headlines in Time magazine a few years later, maybe a decade later, was uh, America about Vietnam. America lost the war. Wait, Vietnam won the war. Capitalism won the struggle because Vietnam was integrated into, into capitalism by then. And it's so it's not about American legitimacy and people not liking America, which they don't. It's whether there is any social force that can break this. And you're looking at whether China could do it. And I'm going to argue in my later session that there are contradictions in China as well. And one of the things we have to ask if, is if there's going to be another pole, does it have to actually break with global capitalism? And if it has to break with global capitalism, and America, then aren't we talking about socialism and socialism coming from socialist movements in the states? Are we exaggerating how much weight we expect to carry in social transformations by depending on inter-imperialist rivalry or on China? And that's something we can get into. And I'd really like to get into the BRICS thing and the uh, China thing. And I, I guess what I'm doing is rather than uh, directly attacking what you're saying, Justin, I'm giving some different takes and some different things to look at, which I think we all will have to sort out as we try to understand where, where are we going in the next 10, 15 years. Okay. Thank you so much, Sam. Um, and yes, uh, we now are moving to the rebuttal phase of this debate. Um, and Justin, I would love to hear your arguments uh, in the context of China and BRICS, especially in Latin America. Um, you have 10 minutes. Go for it. Okay. So Sam, I, I, as I listen to you, you know, I'm reminded of your book with uh, Leo Panich uh, about, you know, a lot of these issues, the, the late uh, Leo Panich, you know, good friend of yours and a colleague of mine at York. Um, and I, what I what I see there is, or what I hear there is uh, a kind of a whole theory of history and, and with like different touch points, you know, the Asian financial crisis and, um, you know, the 1950s or the 70s crisis. And and I have a, a like a, a different um, like I look at history differently, and I look at different touch points, and I I see different um, different things going on, and uh, and different kind of milestones. And here's what I mean. So you talked about how uh, you know the transition from the UK to the, the British Empire to the American 
was different and it's true it was different but i would say that the Ang the british empire had different phases as well and the uh, the british empire was i argue no less of a system uh, that did incorporate Europe, that did incorporate the developing the settler colonies, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the US, uh, Argentina, you know, there were there were beneficiaries. Uh, Europe was developed through this system, the the sterling zone, the 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 way that Keynes, right? Keynes wrote about this in Indian uh his first book, Indian Currency and Finance from 1913. I, I Radhika Desai talks about this, uh, this book. So the the Patnaiks talk about this too, the circulation, the way that they uh the wealth from India that was drained through all these clever mechanisms was then, you know, the source of the surplus that was invested in primarily in Europe again to develop uh the West right and then um so the big event for me is you know the World War World War one of course I mean World War the World Wars are big events but for me you know and like the the way that the Communists, of that time understood like Mao or, you know, Stalin or, or Lenin, they understood it as this process of rebel. You were talking about this, like is capitalism viable, right? So you're talking about it like from the point of view of the capitalists in the West that are trying to, the, the whole narrative that you told struck me as like a narrative of like European capitalists, American capitalists, J Japanese capitalists trying to figure out how to maintain their world domination. What's going on outside of that is, you know, Indian independence in 47, Chinese revolution in 49, uh, the Soviet Union in 1917, uh, and then the, the decolonization of most of the world in the 60s, right? So that is the big story. And for me, the big question for the imperialists, which they never like to talk about. So they 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 almost take it for granted. But for them, their obsession, their perpetual obsession is actually how do we keep the drain from the colonies, the former colonies going? And that's why the neo-colonial. So, you know, the whole idea that these are sovereign states in different levels of dependence, uh, different levels of development. I don't really see it that way. I see it as these are former colonies that are, you know, the new US system is a system ensnaring them all into a neo-colonial uh, situation, a neo-colonial dispensation from which they can continue to extract the, the surplus, which you talked about. Like you, you, you know, I think we agree on that. Like this is about getting free labor um, from, you know, exchanging less for more, right? Exchanging uh, less uh, valuable for more valuable so that you can continue to get these, these wonderful goods, resources, agricultural goods, and, and outright like manufacturing labor, service labor, uh, you know, not all services in the U.S. are high tech, right? A lot of the services are actually uh, performed by insecure global South labor. Um, and that's a big part of what they're doing. So um, so now uh, I, I also agree that we shouldn't underestimate the U.S. And I, I, I you know, I, I'm aware of that danger. You know, the reason, the stakes for me, the reason I'm so interested in this whole multipolarity debate and the reason it, that is that I, I don't want to, you, I don't want to think, I, I, I think it's really important to um, not think that the only possibility for change is going to come from the U.S. And I think I've fallen into that trap uh, for too long. And for me, it's like, 
trying to get out of that headspace has been uh, a big part of this for me. And, uh, and so that's, that's kind of like the stakes of it for me. So now, what does that mean for questions like, so, so, you know, you had this uh, skepticism. Oh, one last point. You, you did say, uh, you know, the, the real reason for the U.S. massive military investment has to do with high tech manufacturing. I, I, I think that's a part of it, but I don't think that's the big part, the big reason for U.S. military investment. I think the real, the big reason for U.S. military investment is fundamentally to uh, maintain the threat of military force all over the world if any if any of the former colonies try to exit the neo-colonial dispensation and that's what i think russia has challenged now i think that russian military power has been um an unpleasant surprise uh but but this is another thing with with the whole way that we discussed the history right because you talked about like the 70s to the 90s, you, you mentioned Vietnam, but the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, was a big part of why the US was able to do all of the things that it did in the 90s uh, and, and why it's not gonna be able to do that anymore. Russia was down and out for a couple of decades and it's not, there's no reason to think that it's going to return to that. And when, from 1917 until 1989, uh, Russia, or 1992 or three or whatever, 91, Russia was always a constraint on Western power. Uh, Russia collapsed. And I think that led a lot of US neocons into this delusion that they could collapse anyone anywhere whenever they want. There's no reason to think Russia is going to collapse like that again. And likewise, China. China was a colony. China was playing a very dependent role in the global economy, even for the first few decades. But in recent decades, that's not the case anymore. China is not, China is more than happy to blow off uh, U.S. dictates whenever it doesn't suit them. And that also is, is driving U.S. elites into a, a bit of a tizzy right now. And, and psychologically, they're having a hard time handling it. So um, that's why I don't think that China and Russia can be dismissed uh, because, again, the historical pattern has always been that they haven't been just like integrated into the world system or the U.S. led system, except for a little while. There was a few decades, uh, you know, in China's case, uh, from about 18, well, that almost the, the so-called century of humiliation, right? 1839 to 1949. In Russia's case, it was less than that. It was it was basically from 1990 till about 2008 or so. Um, and, uh, and so these, these powers are not going away and that's going to have to, and they're not being integrated, uh, as subordinates, uh, in a U.S. led system. I, I don't think they see any reason why they should. Um, and that leads to, you know, so now BRICS, you know, India, um, you know, India's gone pretty fascist. It's been very sad for me to, you know, to watch, um, 
India, but India has has been a pretty capricious ally to the West, right? They've been they've done they've played all kinds of games uh, with Russian oil and and joined various currency swap deals and things. Uh, they haven't been a great ally to the U.S. Uh, they do seem to want some level of independence. Brazil, you know, Brazil is always this question. Brazil was the the reason that we wrote this essay. We we have no idea what what Brazil is going to do. Um, I think for the most part, Brazil is going to have the hardest time uh, coming out from under the thumb of the U.S. as anybody, except maybe the Arab world, which again is uh, continuously the victim, continuously being uh, the target of U.S. operations. And uh, so that is, um, I guess those are my rebuttals. I, I guess the, the way to summarize my rebuttal is um, I see, I, I guess, I, I, what I've heard from you is a kind of a discussion of why Europe and Japan accept U.S. leadership. And I don't think that as the as the former colonies and the neo colonies try to escape from this system, uh, I don't think that they can be as easily contained or um, or negotiated into the system Uh as uh, as the Europe and Japan were, which were always part of the imperial uh, in 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 club, in group. All right, Justin Podor and uh, Sam, you have ten minutes for your okay. rebuttal. Uh, again, where to start? Uh, I mean, very quickly, the, the, the U.S. project was radically different than Britain. I mean, when Britain was building. You know, when Britain had its empire, it, it couldn't, it didn't integrate Germany and Portugal. I mean, the whole African content was divided up. We had a fragmented capitalism. Sections of it had a system in terms of their colonies, but they, they, they had, it was fragmented. And what was unique about the American empire was the extent to which it could actually integrate them. That's really unique. You know, when you talk about Japan and Germany, that's who they fought during the war. These were the enemies. And yet they get integrated after the war. In terms of the global south, uh, I'm bothered by the extent to which everything is conspiratorial. You know, sometimes this kind of exploitation was absolutely direct and gross. But one of the things about capitalism is that capitalism puts a voluntary cover to these things in the same way that, you know, a worker doesn't have to work for the boss, except the structures of capitalism make it necessary if he wants to survive. And then he gets exploited. Well, it's a similar thing with the global south. The, the, you know, there are, you know, there are moments when it is direct, you know, and repressive and use of the military. But there's also this question of the global south looking to develop through a relationship to global capitalism. And China is actually the best example of this. So I'll get to China in a second. But we have to appreciate this, that this is about struggles within each country about where they're going to go. And usually it is a class struggle, but it's a struggle within classes, you know, landowners who aren't interested in globalization, budding manufacturers who are, they're fighting each other, but also workers who are stuck with, we're getting nowhere here. Can we get somewhere better if we integrate into capitalism? And that has happened. I mean, we have to keep remembering that manufacturing has shifted very unevenly, but to the global south, that the, you know, if you look at living standards, measured by standard economics, the, the global South has grown faster than the global West. That doesn't mean that there's not exploitation taking place. 
So I, I just we just have to somehow integrate that into uh, our analysis. Um, what you said about the military, uh, you're absolutely right about the military. What I meant was that people who looked at this economically said this was macro stimulus, and I don't think that was the key. But the main thing about the military is what you said. It's geopolitical. Absolutely agree. So uh, a few things, and, I, and, and I'll get to my China thing, which I've been delaying. Um, I don't see a bipolar world when the U.S. has 300 bases off of China and Canada has more foreign bases than China does. And China has no bases on this continent. There's some, you know, it's talking about this in bipolar terms sounds a little bit like liberal pluralism to me. You know, there's differences, but boy, there's no comparison here in terms of this kind of military extension and capacity. China, China is the most integrated, when we talk about China being, having historical history of independence from colonialism, that's the point, that the making of global capitalism was challenging that historical fact. And China became the most integrated country that has ever existed into capitalism. Nobody has ever been as integrated into capitalism in terms of its dependence uh, for exports, it's access to foreign technology, which is trying to build some independence on, but it's been, you know, the, the foreign investments coming in were always welcome because they were getting with it foreign technologies. China is integrated. So when we get, to, uh, I'll, maybe I'll mention the BRICS in a second. Oh, let me say something quickly and then I'll try to get to China. The BRICS are not anything, you know, yeah, there's, this isn't even comparable to Bandung. These aren't a coherent group of four countries that are going to challenge things. South Africa is a mess internally, completely, full of corruption and everything else. Uh, Brazil, as you said, who knows where Brazil is going? But I remember during the last set of uh, trade negotiations, India and Brazil sounded very militant about free trade. But what they weren't doing is challenging free trade. They were operating within the system. Lula was asking the Americans to open up the border for exports of sugar. He wasn't saying we want to feed our own people and we want to take on our own corporations so we can feed our own people. He was actually speaking on behalf of the multinational corporations in Brazil, the food corporations, so that the market would be opened up. And we have to watch for this. What are they actually asking? And that's what, let me get to that with China. Okay. Um, China has contradictions that we just can't project on a straight line. If China keeps growing, they're going to be number one. One is the fact that they're so integrated, and that integration hasn't ended. It, it's it, it slowed down, but that integration is still there. If you look at China's exports, the exports to Russia are nothing, almost. The export, you know, it's the United States, it's South Korea, which is in the American camp and integrated, and it's Japan. Those are the three main exports. And then you throw on Europe. I mean, this is what China depends on for its exports. If it was going to change this, you'd have to have an, a whole internal structure. There'd be a struggle between the capitalists in China, between those who want to keep exporting and are integrated into global capitalism, and those inland who are thinking about developing for internal consumption. Uh, so China in the process is actually developing a capitalist class that we have to take into consideration. Some of this is the sons and daughters of Communist Party members. But what is this going to mean if China wants to become more... Uh, autonomous and inward uh, looking. What is it doing with the working class? You know, China has 
you know, done quite amazing things in terms of raising living standards or raising poverty. But workers can fight for their wages in a particular factory. But if they try to make links across workplaces, they're generally jailed. So there's the question of what kind of a working class is it forming and where will that working class stand in these struggles? I would read China as what they're saying is, look, we're now a major player globally. We want to be respected as that. We want some status and America isn't giving us that. We don't want arbitrary American intervention. In fact, they're asking America to act like a responsible empire. That's what they were really saying to Trump. You're just arbitrarily changing the rules that you keep insisting on. What, and what America wants, you know, it's, it's pretty ambiguous. They're worried about China militarily, uh, but they still want to go there. They still want to get their finance in. They want their high tech to be, to be there. So, you know, th this is a, a, a critical part. And China doesn't have the capacity to act like a global hegemon. They can't do that. That's not where, you know, you, you can't do that if most of the wealth in the country is in Europe and Japan and South Korea or Taiwan even. China isn't, doesn't have the capacity. It doesn't want the burden of having to worry about how you run this complex empire. It's making these small adjustments. You know, in terms of international exchange, U.S. is roughly 60%. Europe's got 20%. China isn't even any close to Europe. And Europe got there. The fact that it has the Europe doesn't challenge the dollar. It supplements it. It's part of the dollarization of the euro. Uh, and the renminbi isn't that much, doesn't play much more of a role than the Canadian uh, dollar changes. So it's China is trying to establish a place within an empire that America oversees, and China is trying to establish some autonomy with it, within it. Now that leads to tensions, but this is not about trying to replace the U.S. And I think we have to understand that it, it doesn't have the capacity, and it doesn't have the interest in doing it. It doesn't have, you know, that kind of, you know, the, the military bases around the world, but just, and the biggest thing it doesn't have is if you want to replace the U.S., you have to replace it with the renminbi. And although you can exchange it with telling Brazil we'll accept your currency and you'll accept ours, if you want the renminbi to play a role, you have to liberalize it. Capital has to know that if we invest in China, we can take our money out. China's not going to set up, an, and China won't let that happen because their control over the Chinese economy depends very much on not being liberal about finance. That's a critical part of their whole strategy. So there's a structural reason for China not to do this. So, so what we have to, so I think how we have to see China, and even more so everything else that you've raised, uh, I should say something about Russia before I leave, is that China is trying to change its status within the American empire at a moment when it doesn't, it has, it's got some friends, it can do some things. There's a lot of talk in Africa about different currencies, et cetera. That doesn't mean a lot in terms of the kind of radical changes we're talking about. The question is whether China, uh, in trying to assert some a degree of independence, is leading to the U.S. to react in a way that pushes China to, to be, to, you know, to have to move even further away, which would be a massive thing for China to do, given its integration. What the U.S. is doing is... It's not that the U.S. hegemony is being challenged. What's being challenged is American absolute power. And that's what America can't get out of their head. We have to have absolute power. That's the story with Russia. 
That's the story with China. And that's why it's so hard to come to some kind of an agreement. But they don't actually need it. There's a lot, you know, they don't need absolute power, but that's what happens when you have power. Very quickly on Russia, uh, which I think we really disagree with. You know, when there was the Soviet Union, they couldn't compete with the West. When they actually had, were at their peak, they couldn't compete with their West. What we're seeing is a desperate Russia who's defensively saying, we're completely surrounded by NATO. And here's our, if, if Ukraine surrounds it too, we're completely encircled. This is our last chance to do something. After this, we won't have anything. They're a midget in terms of the economies of Europe. They don't have any ambitions to restore an empire. Right? I mean, Putin had this great statement, which he said, anybody who doesn't want to see the restoration of the Russian empire doesn't have a heart. But anybody who thinks it's possible doesn't have a brain. And I take him seriously on that. Russia doesn't have the capacity to say, they don't, they don't even have the capacity to take over Ukraine. They just want to, you know, they want pieces of the territory. So Russia is not a threat. And the United States, again, because I think what the United States is thinking is, uh, and I think these are crazy in the United States, these are the neocons, is if Russia and Germany got together, they would have a bit more autonomy. Not that they would replace us, and they don't want that. At the same time, if Russia and China get together, they will have a bit more autonomy. So Russia is kind of a linchpin, and they're looking to weaken it. Uh, and whether the strategy was a smart strategy or not, we'll, we'll see, or whether there's pushback. But I just wouldn't make too much of the kind of pushback that's coming out from people in Africa saying we're neutral on the war. China's been actually quite cautious in terms of sending arms. To, to their credit, they've been, you know, they, they've expressed the autonomy of at least being neutral and trying to play a role for peace. But we're not seeing, you know, unless the tensions rise up and people can, and when tensions exist, act stupidly, uh, we're not seeing a radical change in global capitalism yet. And I think the only way we'll see it is when there's actually people from below who are fighting to get out of it with a different kind of a system. And we don't see that. We don't see that in the West. We're not seeing it in the South. Okay. And then we can do our final five our minutes. Our final, yeah, Fantastic. final five. Uh, Justin, do you want to take your final five? Yes. Okay. So let's, let me just say that I, I think I, I want to, I want to disambiguate here or like make sure we understand. I don't, I do not think that China wants to, or has any interest in replacing the U S nor does Russia. I don't think the Soviet union wanted to, I don't think China wants to, I don't think, uh, that that's on the horizon. That that's a big part of why, uh, they, you know, in their own words, talk about multipolarity. They don't want to replace the U.S. Nobody wants to replace the U.S. What's going to replace the U.S. is uh, something like what the U.N., the United Nations was supposed to be, uh, a system of sovereign states that can set their own national uh, economic policies. That's what China says they want. And, you know, again, debate we can debate whether they do it or not or the extent to which they do it but i do think that is what they practice more so definitely than uh the us and the west projections uh aside uh so china doesn't have bases i don't think they want bases you know all of that is true um so but but um 
let me just again uh the voluntary cover that capitalism puts over uh over i i do have i have a disagreement with you sam in that like i don't the way you talk about capitalism i find it's like it's a person it's like capitalism does this it says this but i i, I don't really think of it that way uh but i you know to to try to use your language to to answer this like the 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 it's not i don't believe that any of the imposition of the U.S. Uh, imperialists' economic policies uh, is a came from a voluntary debate. That's a, that's a huge statement I just made, but I don't think I'll repeat it. I don't think any of it was a voluntary adoption by elites in the global south. I believe all of it was violence. It was coups. It was assassinations. It was the CIA. Uh, you know, Bill Bloom's killing hope all of Chomsky's uh, stuff, the, the book on Indonesia, the Jakarta method, they committed genocide in Indonesia to stop, uh, you know, the socialists. They, 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 the coups in Chile, the, the Southern Cone dictatorships, the dictatorship in Brazil, the bases in South Korea, like it's a, Zaire, you know, Zaire had the IMF came and took over their bank. They, IMF officials came and hung out in their central bank uh, and took it over. Like this was not, uh, a debate that that the capitalists won. This was a blood-soaked neo-colonial campaign of mass murder and death in the West too, right? We know about uh, the West and Operation Gladio and the Stay Behind Armies and all of those conspiracies uh, as well. Um, now, the Global South, there's, there's two other little factual things, maybe three, that I want to dispute. One is you said, you know, the, U the U.S. had 50% of manufacturing after the war and it went down and that's not declined. It had 50% of manufacturing after the war because all of its European rivals had self-destructed, right? So I think that, you know, the lower and the same thing with the Global South growing faster. The Global South grew faster than the West because it started lower. Um, it started lower because of all the hundreds of years of colonial drain. Um, the the China being the most integrated with capitalism. I don't agree. I think Haiti, I think the DR Congo, I think the Afghanistan, these are the most integrated countries. These are the countries that don't have any say in monetary policy, economic policy, union law, economics. They don't have any say. All of those things are imposed on them by the West. Sometimes, like I said, literally by personnel who come and take over uh, the governments. China has independence in those areas. China subordinates its billionaires. If China doesn't like what a billionaire is doing, it's the billionaire that goes to jail. You talked about workers that go to jail, but China doesn't have any problem sending billionaires to jail uh, if the billionaires step out of line. It cancels their, uh, you know, cancels their moves that they make. They they behave towards billionaires in ways that are absolutely appalling to Americans because Americans understand that billionaires are supposed to be uh, in charge of everything and worshipped and revered. So. I do, you know, again, we have a, we have a, dis, we have a disagreement. We have a very serious disagreement about uh, China and what China is and what China is doing and what kind of country China is. And a lot of what you're saying about China is like, China doesn't want this and China wants that and America wants this. And to me, that all sounds like, again, like, like the way you've been talking about capitalism, you're kind of like assigning a, an anthropomorphic character to China, whereas, you know, we have to analyze what like individual actors or or collective actors within uh china are doing 
and and we can't really say much about what they want in that sense. I'm a, I agree with your dismissal of of Brazil and South uh, Africa in terms of BRICS, but I do I don't think that that extends to Russia and China. So finally, to the point about uh, the yuan not replacing the um, the dollar, that's fine. Um, but you, that's not the only option. And that's not, again, what, you know, even Dilma and the BRICS Bank and, and Glaziev in Russia and the Chinese are talking about right now. They're talking about things like how you can how you can have a currency or, you know, how you can have an international financial system without the dollar and without one currency doing it all, which is like what, for example, Keynes proposed after at the Bretton Woods, which was shot down by the Americans who wanted the dollar system, the bank or the idea of a currency that isn't in what people's wallets or people's bank accounts, but it's used just to, uh, you know, clear international transactions and, and restore balances between countries uh, instead of weaponizing them, which is what the U.S. can do. So that is, uh, that's my, that's my final final statement which means you have the last word sam <laughs> Go i guess it, i had sam. the first word so. and after we're off the air i'm going to keep talking <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I i've got two or three kind of conclusions uh okay. and i i can't avoid those saying some of the things that you're raising about china i mean you know the, the you know your your defense of the billionaires wow i mean the question is how does china how did china end up with so many billionaires is a question it says something about the Chinese system. The fact that they jailed a couple of billionaires, that, you know, that's the way you justify what you're actually doing. They left most of the billionaires in place because the billionaires come out of an economic system that is capitalist, that the state is, you know, it's, it's supporting markets and certain kinds of inequalities as necessary. Um, your point about, you know, the, the horrors of the development of capitalism. Well, of course, by the way, I should say that I don't see it as, yeah, obviously people make history and they make it given uh, the circumstances that they confront, which are certain structures. So there are structures that are impersonal and there are actors who act through them, but what they can do depends on those structures. So if you look at the history of capitalism domestically, of course, it's full of bloodshed right from the beginning, right from the beginning, beginning in England. And it's full of that in the global south. But I don't think you can understand the global south if you only understand it in involuntary ways, in the same way that you can't understand what happens under capitalism if you simply say bosses exploit workers. There's also a reaction of workers of trying to make it within the system or justify it within the system or deal with the, you know, with what they've been, the hand that they've been held. And that has to do with not debt being formed on the global south, but people looking to debt to solve problems, looking to export because they see that as a way of getting income and getting jobs and, and developing industry. And that has to be part of the story. It's a very uneven story, but that you somehow capitalism just becomes this plunderer. And capitalism is more than that. That's why it survived, because it's more than a plunderer. Um, okay, um, some more important points that I think I want to make. I want to make the point that a lot of people who look to inter-imperial rivalry, and I don't think you are in this case, but it's relevant here, uh, look to it as a way of saying, if there's rivalry, the US won't be as dominant and that'll be better. 
the problem with that argument is that you can actually have rivalry that is worse, that leads to nationalism in a reactionary sense uh, of the kind that Trump was promoting, uh, that even in the global south can lead to, to a certain kind of nationalism that is about people sacrificing for their elites in order to fit in differently. I mean, those are things to consider when, when we're talking about uh, the question of rival, you know, rivalry and bipolarity. Um, um, you know, there's also the question of if there's a crisis that we're cheering for, for a lot of workers and people in the global south, the response to that will be to get rid of the crisis. The crisis, it lowers expectations. So people look at the period before the crisis as, uh, you know, as, as looking better. Crises do not necessarily politicize people, which is part of what I want to get at. The main thing I want to say about your rebuttal, and then I'll conclude with two other points, is that, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of people talking, including liberals here, who are talking about why don't we have a more rational system where people, you know, we don't have the dollar. Uh, we have a common currency. Well, that's a socially, you know, what that's about isn't a bunch of people meeting in a room and saying, I have a better idea. This is about struggle. This is about power. This is about capacities. It isn't going to happen because somebody decided we'll have a new IMF currency, which has been floated forever. It doesn't happen for particular reasons in the same way that after the war, uh, you know, the, 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 the U.S. won its way because it had the material capacities. And by the way, the loss of the manufacturing uh, was looking more, uh, more, more into the 50s when, you know, the point was that through the American system, Europe actually shared in it. That was part of the making of the system and making it work. And that's also been part of, yeah, that countries were poor for historical reasons related to colonialism. But the question was, is development of any kind being blocked, which was a lot what a lot of the left was saying. And the fact was, it wasn't. It was blocked some places and it wasn't others. And we have to deal with those differences within them. I guess my main argument is that to talk about changes uh, in terms of bipolarity or multipolarity mean radical changes in the nature of power in the global economy. And that's not there. It, you know, Kotsky, after the First World War, raised the question of why don't we all get together and stop having a war amongst elites? Well, that doesn't happen because capitalism develops so unevenly that different capitalists are always going to think of, I'll have an advantage if I do something different. That's what the U.S. solved. It actually said, we're overseeing this, and these are the rules, and you're going to follow them, and you're going to benefit from them, and we're going to have this military to kind of police things. It doesn't work that way. So these notions of, you know, unless we link these notions of a new currency uh, that looks more rational to some kind of radical social changes, it isn't going to happen. They're playing on, you're playing on the margins. And those kinds of changes won't happen unless we start debating more what's happening inside each of these countries, the contradictions inside of them and the class struggles inside of them. Because I think what your argument is skipping over by looking at the U.S. as the driver of everything that's bad, which I think it's very prominent and obviously, but that there are class forces domestically that we have to address. And those are contradictory, including, you know, the nature, the extent to which the working class is uh, integrated or not. I, I do think that you're seriously underestimating 
China's integration. I mean, China's integration is phenomenal. Yeah, Afghanistan is dependent, yes. But China voluntarily, this wasn't the U.S. taking over China and telling them you're going to enter global capitalism. This was the U.S. conceding, we'll support you in terms of the WTO because we want you in, because we're looking at your market. You know, I was in negotiations with GM once and they told me that the uh, middle class in China potentially had a larger market than all of Europe put together. And that was his way of telling us, you better behave because we're going to move to China. Now, the, the point is that China is profoundly integrated in class terms uh, and even, you know, and, he, and, and in terms of party legitimacy. Their legitimacy comes very much from showing people that they can deliver uh, in the goods. Now, the question is, uh, how do they break from this? Do they want to break with this? And th this is a major question. This isn't the question of somebody saying, let's, let's have a different currency. I've got a great idea. It's not going to happen that way. We have to really take this seriously. I guess that I'll, I'll conclude there. I, 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 I'm really bugged by us trying to solve internal problems by thinking that rivalry between big powers will do the heavy weighting for us, heavy lifting for us. I do think they're relevant. I mean, I think what happens in China is very important. If the Chinese working class said, we're gonna, we want socialism again, that would be profound. Now that would be, then I would be interested in talking about polarity and where it's going. As it is, I'm watching and I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know what's gonna happen militarily. Uh, yeah, you know, you, we're kind of observing this. I'm just skeptical that something is already in the process of happening because we see these particular signs that I don't think are that major yet. They're significant. I mean, I do think that China has changed the way global capitalism works and I think it's one of the things I'd really study more if I was studying this again. Okay. Wow. Well, I need a glass of water. Um, Sam and Justin, I think you're both winners, despite the fact that we all lose under capitalism, of course. Um, and folks listening or watching uh, this, hopefully uh, through this journey, you all learned something, wrestled dialectically and, of course, non-liberally with the tension inside this debate, and most importantly, made friends along the way. Um, you can go to Twitter and vote in the poll. If you're watching on YouTube, you can indicate who you think won in the comments. If you're listening on one of the podcast apps, you can write a review, which also helps and indicate who you think won in the, in the debate in that review. Um, and uh, may capitalism and all Western <laughs> colonial empires fall. And may you all have a good rest of your day. Sam wants to say something else. Yes, yes go I ahead. To, I, I just wanted to say that as much as uh, I, I think Justin and I are really looking at this from a different lens. And that's, it's a lens that's got to be debated, but I've always felt camaraderie with Justin about where we want to go. Yeah. Uh, and his clarity of thought. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, okay. I thank you both for teaching me so much. Well, on this, once again, on this we're, journey. All, we're, we're all winners. <laughs> <laughs> but Sam, if uh, you know, if, if if I get outvoted, I know you you mentioned uh, as we were planning this that that if you lose, you have to come back for a grudge match or like a, a rematch. <laughs> but I I think if you win, I'll have to call either Radhika Desai or Carl Zah or someone like a, a a bigger multipolar boss 
uh, for you because it'll be like a video game where like you have to mortal I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring my heavyweights in too. <laughs> Ooh, I'd love to see. We should have a panel. Just kind of relax and watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can relax, right? We're like the we're like the we will be like the you know the the first. Uh, yeah, but I, I I do I do think these are the kind of you know these are the kind of big debates in terms of what's the framework that people have to kind of get their heads into, especially now. They didn't seem relevant for a long time, yeah. but now these debates seem more relevant again, and I think that's good and i it's hope because, that uh, it's because there's a transition happening <laughs> oh no, wait, oh, no. Oh, well, justin there are, there are changes happening. <laughs> there are changes happening but, uh, yeah no what what they mean we have uh, yeah